to. You know, one of the great things about revival is I've studied it down through uh, 36 years of evangelistic ministry. I think I've read every book that's ever been written on the Welsh revival of 1904. God smiled on the Principality of Wales for about 18 months from 1904 into early 1906. Any of you ever read anything about the Welsh revival of 1904? I know Brother Jones has, others of you have. But anyway, God smiled on the Principality of Wales and it was said that if you could have hovered over the Principality of Wales during the height of that revival, you would have seen seemingly unconnected prairie fires of revival just popping up all over the country of Wales. And they seem to be totally unrelated uh, to one individual preacher, though God primarily used Evan Roberts. And there's a great book on the Welsh Revival called War on the Saints by Jesse Penn Lewis and Evan Robertson. It's not easy reading. It is not light reading, but I would recommend it to you. There's also a great book, a little more easy to read, called the Welsh Revival of 1904. There's a lot of them. But anyway, part of that revival was tremendous singing. And preacher, you hit the nail on the head. It had to do primarily with great congregational singing. They had very little special music. Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not against special music. I love special music. Thank God for it. And we have heard great special music all this week. If you agree, you ought to say amen right there. It's been stellar tonight. Wonderful music tonight. Last night, that trio, they gave me a CD. I listened to it all the way home. Especially that song about standing our ground. Man, I love that. That is so apropos to where we are right now. But primarily, revival does something to the entire congregation. And everybody lifts their voice in praise to the Lord, whether we have a great voice or not. And I'll let you know this, I don't have a great singing voice at all, but I tell people all the time, what I lack in talent, I can more than make up for in volume. And so that's what I try to do. And tonight and last night and all this week, we've heard great special music, but even better congregational singing. And so tomorrow night, I hope you'll just lift the roof off this place in songs of praise to the Lord. But I want to let you know again as well how much I love Calvary Baptist Church. I'm telling you, I wish I could take this church and just transplant it all over the United States of America, preacher. Uh, I know maybe you folks don't fully understand this, but as a traveling evangelist, I mean, every size church, every type, complexion of church, uh, every kind of church as far as the spirit and the personality that they have. Uh, and it is true, the churches do take on the personality and the spirit of their leadership. They really, really do. And so what's going on here to me speaks volumes, volumes to your pastor and to the kind of leadership you have here at Calvary. And so uh, I praise God for Pastor Stephen Pope. I do. I fell in love with him the first time I met him as a teenager. That was many years ago, wasn't it? But anyway, uh, just so thankful, so privileged and so honored to be here. But uh, folk, you're blessed. You're blessed to be a part of this church. And if uh, you're watching online and you don't know what Calvary is all about, I would encourage you to come and give this church a visit. I'm just telling you, you should do that. And if you're here visiting tonight and you're looking for a church, I, I'd end my search right here. I would. Uh, God's been good to this church, and I thank God so much for you. And uh, just praising God. Appreciate what the brother said uh, as he was sharing about not living in fear. And again, Folk, I want to say this. People have accused me, and it's a false accusation. Brother Kistler, you don't think the virus was real. No, I know it's real. I've had six people very close to me get it. One of them was a family member, and all six of them, thank God, have recovered. I know some people that got it. They are acquaintances more than they are close personal friends that did not survive it. And so it's never been a question about the reality of the virus for me. It's never been a question. The virus is real. But my concern, as much as the reality of the virus, has been our response to the virus and how we've gotten so scared out of our mind that we have really, I think, displayed to a lost world something that really the church of Jesus Christ is not and should not be. 
And that is that we should not live in fear about anything. That doesn't mean we deny the reality of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind, a sane, sensible mind. And I don't want to live in fear about anything. And I was reading early on, Pastor, when the pandemic got started, about 1517, the Black Plague came through Germany. By the way, it went through Wittenberg, Germany, where the great reformer Martin Luther lived. And he was so well known at that time, people told him this, you need to stay cloistered away from anybody that might have uh, the Black Plague or the Black Death because you're so important to the cause of Christ. And he was an important component to the cause of Christ. But I want you to listen to what Martin Luther said. He said, I shall not do anything that shall unjustly cause my death and I shall certainly not do anything that would inappropriately cause the death of someone else. However, if the Lord wants me, he surely knows where to find me. <laughs> and he opened his home up and turned it into a hospital for those that were plagued with the black death. And you know what? God carried him all the way through it, though he was around those people day and night. So the point is this that our brother said, uh, God's got all of this in his time frame. And I don't mean, you know, from a human perspective, I don't fully understand how all this works, but I will tell you this. God's got it all in his hand. We shouldn't act stupid or silly or challenge or test God in his goodness. But the fact of the matter is this. If we're doing the work of God, uh, and I believe this with all my heart, we're invincible till he's done with us. And if a disease takes Dave Kistler out, it's because God was done with me. If a disease takes you out, you're trying to serve the Lord. It's because God was done with you and he wanted you on that side more than on this side. But until then, we're invincible until God's through with us. And so I appreciate so much the emphasis all this week. And I appreciate so much the courageous faith that so many of you in this congregation have lived and are living right now. I praise God for you. Again, it doesn't mean ignoring things. doesn't mean taking appropriate precautions, especially if you're in one of those groups that are a little more prone. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means no matter what's going on in our life, no matter whether we're fully healthy or we're battling with what they call now today comorbidities, you know, things that are kind of underlying in our health condition. Either way, we can walk by faith. And trust God and not have to live in fear. And I believe that's what this congregation is doing. So preach, I just want to say this. Being here is like inhaling pure oxygen to me. I'm just telling you it is. It's just been astounding. I go places all the time and try to minister and be a blessing to people. But there are churches that minister back to me. Not all of them do that. And you guys that are singers know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you get into a church and the only thing missing because the church is so dead is the body in the coffin up front. If you know what I'm saying. My brother and I used to travel and sing something and he'd say, he'd lean over to me between songs. He'd say, Dave, all we need is to roll the body down front. That's what they need to do. Experience will be complete. You know, well, that's not the case here, all right? And so you guys have ministered to me more than you'll ever know. And so I thank God so much for you. 2 Samuel chapter number 10, if you would, please. 2 Samuel chapter number 10. Let me just say this. There is something else going on in a few states north of here tonight in the city of Cleveland, Ohio. Any of you know what I'm talking about? All right, you know that. I want you to be praying about that uh, over the course of the evening. Uh, once this service is over, praying for the outcome of all of that. I do believe it's vitally important for these debates to take place. Because the American people do need to see. And I've been praying all afternoon, Lord, please let the policy positions that are so apparent 
to anybody that knows the different policy positions represented by the two candidates, let those policy positions be made crystal clear tonight because they are dramatically different. And what I'm about to say, folk, is this. Please don't think I'm trying to be political. I'm just being honest. My own stupidity, I had never until 2016 ever sat down and read word for word the entire party platform of both political parties. I had never done that. I'd always known they were different the way they approached things, but I'd never read the entire party platform. But in 2016, I sat down and did that because I was struggling. I was struggling. You know, I'd read The Art of the Deal by our current president, Donald J. Trump. I read it years ago. And uh, I knew his background. I knew he had a less than stellar background. But by the way, there's some of us sitting in this room. We had a less than stellar background too, don't we? But the fact of the matter is, I, I, I was struggling and I was being asked to come and speak at pastors groups over in Virginia and other places. Preacher, you know, you have a ministry on Capitol Hill. Come and share with us what you know about the 2016 election. Give us some insight. Give us some help. Give us some direction. And so I was struggling myself. And so I was praying, Lord, help me. Help me understand what I need to do and then help me understand what I need to share with these men that are calling me and asking me to come and share with groups of pastors around the country. Well, anyway, long and short of it is this. The Lord began to deal with my heart about Isaiah chapter number 45. Now, don't turn there. But in Isaiah 45 verses 1 through 6, God says this of Cyrus. And if you know anything about King Cyrus, he was the most pagan of pagan kings. It's hard to find anybody that would eclipse Cyrus as far as being a pagan king. But you know what God said about Cyrus in Isaiah 45? He said, you are my anointed. I have chosen you. You are my anointed, Cyrus, and I've anointed you. I have chosen you for the protection of my people Israel. And twice in Isaiah 45 verses 1 through 6, God says this, and you don't even know me. In Hebrew, it's a lot stronger than it sounds in English. It literally means this in Hebrew, and you, Cyrus, won't even acknowledge that I exist. But I've chosen you. And I got to thinking, you know what? President Trump could be our Cyrus. I mean, he just could be our Cyrus. And so again, I may be probably telling you more than I need to, but the bottom line is this. I, I, I begin to pray and I thought, well, I need to read the party platforms. And folks, I'm just going to be honest with you. Can I, can I just speak truth to you from my heart? I don't have a dog in the political fight, okay? I really, really don't. I'm not interested in D or R. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in somebody who's going to do something that's right for the United States of America and not try to turn us into a socialist country, which our framers and the founders of our country never envisioned would happen. So I sat down and read the party platforms. Folks, I'm just going to word it the way I felt. When I got through reading the one-party platform, Brother Steve, I felt like my mind had taken about an hour and 15-minute trek through a sewer. It's everything not only we're against, it's everything God's against. And then I found out the other party platform was actually done by Heritage, or excuse me, Family Research Council. And when I read through it, it took me about 45 minutes, and the only thing missing from that party platform were the Scripture references. It was everything we agree with on the issue of life and marriage and Israel and national defense and immigration policy and all of those things that are so vitally important that are every time we vote in a presidential election, they're on the ballot. So at that point, to me, it was pretty much a no-brainer. Now, again, I'm not telling you how to vote except I'm going to say this. You need to pray about how God would have you vote. Then you need to vote as biblically as you possibly can because there are no perfect candidates. There are no such thing as a perfect candidate. 
And so uh, tonight, tonight is an important night. And I've been praying all afternoon, oh God, reveal certain things, even posted on Facebook. There are a couple of things to suggest people not just watch the debate, but watch and pray while you're watching the debate that certain things would be made apparent. And that's what I've been doing. And as I trek home tonight after the service and catch the latter part of the debate, I'm going to be praying about those things as well. Please don't throw a hymn book at me and hate me for what I've just said, okay? Uh, I'm just trying to be honest with you. And if you do hate me, I, I want you to know you are wasting your time hating me because I'm going to go home tonight. And once the debate's over, I'm going to have myself Coke and some popcorn, sit down fellowship with my wife. And then we're going to put our head on a pillow and I'm going to sleep just fine, whether you like me or whether you don't. And because I love you. Whether you don't like me or not, I love you. I want you to know that. But I'm not here to please you or anybody else. I'm here to please the king. And so uh, take what I've said tonight for the way I intended it, and then let's go out and do what we believe God would have us do. Now, all of that said, I, I want to take you to an interesting passage of Scripture, by the way, and I'm, I'm going to tell you who we're going to look at tonight very, very briefly, and that is we're going to look at the man Joab. Joab. Do you remember Joab? How many of you recognize the name? Know something about the man from the Old Testament by the name of Joab. By the way, Joab uh, was uh, actually related to King David. He was David's sister's son. So he was actually kind of a nephew of David. So there's a family relationship here. But Joab rose to the top and became the commander of David's army. And Joab's life literally was like many of our lives. I mean, I don't know if you ever feel this way, but you know, some days we're way up here, some days we're way down here, and we just kind of ride through life sometimes on an emotional roller coaster. Everybody know what I'm talking about? You know, that's why sometimes we just need a good old-fashioned heaven sent heart impacting eternity changing revival because God wants us you know, to stop this kind of thing and our trajectory should be like this All right, and revival helps us with that so Joab's life was one of those that was up down up down high points a lot of low points but uh, Joab's life is where we're going to go tonight. Now, let me just say this. Joab is perhaps best known for two incidences that I very quickly want to relate. Do you remember the Bible says at the time that kings go forth to battle, David tarried still at Jerusalem. How many of you remember this? He's an older man now. He's served a number of years as king. This particular night, when he should have been out leading his army into battle, the Bible says he not only tarried, but he walked out on the roof of the palace and he spied, or he saw, the Bible says, a woman on an joining rooftop washing herself that is taking a bath and the Bible makes this comment that she was very beautiful to look upon David the Bible says sent and inquired and said who is this woman and thank God preacher there was a servant because there's always faithful servants in government that will speak truth to power can I hear an amen and this servant said king don't go where you're going or thinking about going don't do what you're thinking about doing is not this the wife the wife of Uriah the Hittite king. Don't go there. She's somebody else's wife. Are you listening to me? Thank God for a servant like that. But see, David's king. So the Bible says he brings that woman Bathsheba to the palace. They are intimate together. He sends her on her way, thinks nobody will ever know. But see, the problem is God knew. And I don't know how much time we can surmise, Bible scholars have surmised about this, how many weeks it was, but she sends word back to David and said, look, as you well know, my husband is fighting in your army, and so the baby I'm now carrying in my womb is your child. You're the one that has impregnated me. Is everybody with me? And David says, uh-oh. And you remember he sends and has Uriah, her husband, brought back from the battlefield. 
You think of this preacher. He sets your eye up and says, hey, how's the battle going? Well, King, it's going pretty well. Well, here's what I want you to do. You have to be tired. You know, you've been fighting out there. Why don't you go home and spend a little bit of time with your wife thinking, thinking if they spend time together, maybe everybody will think the baby is his, not the king's. But you see, Uriah was a man of integrity. And what he said was this, shall I go home and enjoy time with my wife when my brethren are out in the battlefield? Absolutely not. Now, when you're a king who's not got integrity at this point in your life and you've got a man who does have integrity that's saying, I'm not going to do what the other guys don't get to do, then friend, you've got a problem. So David brings him back the next night and gets him drunk. And folks, won't you listen to me, even drunk, Uriah had more integrity than David did sober. And he sleeps on the steps of the palace. And David realizes I've got a big problem. So he drafts a letter, seals it with a king's signet ring, rolls it up, seals it with a ring, hands it to Uriah, and Uriah, without even knowing that he's doing this, is carrying back to Joab his own death warrant. Everybody remember this? And when he delivers that message to Joab, Joab breaks it open and reads it, and what it says is this. The king said, hey, put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle, and then retreat, signal retreat, and withdraw from him, and let him be killed. In other words, put him in a spot he's not familiar with fighting, withdraw from him, and let him die. Man, how far down do you have to go? To get to that point. So preacher, the only thing worse than suggesting that is exactly what Joab did. He did it. In the archer's shoot, and evidently Joab was among those, or excuse me, Uriah was among those that were killed by the archers. And Joab sends a runner, a messenger that runs back to David. And Joab has coached him. He says, tell the king we lost X number of men today. And if he gets upset, say this, but Uriah was among those. How many of you remember this? So that's exactly what happens. King, we lost X number of men today. Archer's sharp from the wall. And David said, didn't you? What was Joab thinking? Why would he allow the army to get that close to where the archers could get to them? And the servant quickly says, but uh, Uriah was among those killed. And David's attitude changes instantly. Listen to the callous comment David makes. A sword consumes one as well as another. You know what that means? Boy, war is an indiscriminate thing, isn't it? It's amazing how it claims one person lets everybody else live. The sword consumes one as well as another. And David thinks, I'm off the hook. But he's not. And God touches the heart in the ear of Nathan the prophet. And remember, Nathan goes... And ultimately, after telling a little story about a man who had a big flock of sheep and he wouldn't take one of them for his friend that came to visit, the man next to him only had one pet lamb. You know, he slept with that lamb. And and that guy said, the rich man went and took the one little pet lamb and killed it to offer it as a meal to the wayfaring stranger. And of course, David gets incensed and said, the guy that's done that's going to die. But before he dies, he's going to pay fourfold. And Nathan said, thou art the man. And at that point, David prays that awesome prayer in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Now, folks, I want you to notice something. David did not use the terminology we use in America today. He didn't say, God, you'll forgive me for my mistake. Lord, I had a little slip up. He doesn't say any of that. He calls what he did sin, iniquity, transgression, evil. Evil. I've done evil in thy sight. Folk, I submit to you, we're never going to have revival in America till we're willing to call our sin what God calls our sin. Uriah was complicit, or Uriah was killed. Joab was complicit. And all of that that happened with respect to Bathsheba and her husband Uriah and his inauspicious murder. You'll remember this incident with Joab very quickly. 
Remember when David's son Absalom started an insurrection against his own daddy? You remember how Absalom had to flee the city? Preacher, there's a sermon in this and I'm not going to go there tonight. But he fled the city on the back of a mule. Normally, king's sons rode on the back of horses, stellar steeds, but old Absalom flees on the back of a mule. Man, I'd love to camp out there tonight and I'll not do it. But the Bible says the mule goes under some branches of a tree and there is some disagreement among Bible scholars. Was he caught by his neck or was it his hair? Most likely it was his hair because he only pulled his hair, cut his hair once a year. His hair is very long. He evidently got swept up into the branches of the tree. Mule goes out from underneath him and there is Absalom suspended from a tree hanging between heaven and earth. How many of you remember the story? And somebody comes and tells Joab, hey, I saw Absalom. I saw the insurrectionist hanging from a tree. And David had given clear instruction to Joab and everybody. If you find my son, go gently with him. Do not harm him. But Joab goes and as Absalom is suspended from the tree, Joab takes three darts and rams them through the heart of Absalom and kills him. And when word gets back to David, David goes up the steps of the palace crying, oh Absalom, my son, my son, would to God I had died for thee. Oh God, I wish it had been me instead of Absalom. Oh Absalom, my son, my son. It was Joab that disregarded his king's command. And by the way, David told Solomon before David left this life, he said, Solomon, don't you forget what Joab did to me. And you deal with him when I'm gone. And Solomon does. Do you remember how Joab flees like Adonijah had done preacher earlier? And it worked for Adonijah. It didn't work for Joab. He fled into the tabernacle of God and grabbed hold of the horns of the altar thinking I'll be safe here. But a man by the name of Benaiah goes in there and kills Joab right there like the king had commanded. Are you listening? Wow, what a life Joab did. More low points maybe than high ones. But the passage I want you to look at in 2 Samuel 12 or 2 Samuel 10 verse 12 is probably Joab's shining moment. Now let me just ask this. How many of you watch Division I college basketball every year and you would have watched it last year had coronavirus not messed it all up? How many of you watch? Do you remember at the end of the NCAA tournament, the 64 or however many teams now they have in there, at the end of the tournament after they crown the victor, they always show a collage, kind of a video collage of all the great moments of the 64 team tournament and they call the collage one shining moment. Any of y'all remember this? I watch it every year. I watch the game just to see that at the very end, one shining moment and they show all the amazing plays. What I'm trying to tell you is what I'm about to read to you is Joab's one shining moment. In this moment, the advice he gives is stellar. The choices he advocates are amazing. And that's what I want to share with you from my heart tonight for just a few minutes and we're going to be done and go to our respective homes. But I want to preach to you from my heart tonight. Folks, this has been heavy on my heart and I want you to hear me, not just my voice, I want you to hear my heart trying to communicate to you. I want to preach to you tonight on this topic, monumental choices in moments of crisis. Monumental choices in moments of crisis. Would you agree with me? America is in a crisis point right now. Preacher, we're at the tipping point. There is no middle ground. It's either revival or ruin in America. It's revival or revolution in America. There is no middle ground. What happens going forward, folks, in the next 36 days, now tomorrow 35 days, will determine the future that you and I live in and that our kids and grandkids live in. There's some choices that must be made 
by God's people. Monumental choices in moments of crisis. You say, preacher, what in the world are you talking about? Look at 2 Samuel 10. Look at verse 11. We'll start reading there. By the way, Joab is talking to his brother Abishai. Abishai. By the way, Joab had two brothers. He had a brother named Abishai. He had a brother named Ashael. Do you remember the description given of Ashael? The Bible says of Ashael, he was fleet of foot. That is, that old boy could book. He could run. Everybody with me? Well, here's the other brother, Abishai. Look what he's saying in 2 Samuel 10 verse 11. And he, Joab said, if the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. Talking to his brother Abishai. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then I will come and help thee. Now, folk, look at me. A lot of stuff going on in this verse. But they're fighting a battle on two fronts. Right now, America's fighting all kinds of battles on multiple fronts. We've got physical battles going on in the streets of America. We're fighting this thing called socialism. Folk, listen, the framers of our Constitution, the founders of our country, would roll over in their grave if they knew the socialist agenda that certain people running for office have and what they want to see done in the United States of America. Preacher, you shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. I'll never apologize for loving my country enough to speak the truth. You cut me, I bleed red, white, and blue, and I'll never apologize for that. I love America. America, America, God shed His grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. What a blessed country we live in. It was handed down to me by a prior generation, handed down to you by your parents and grandparents. I stand tonight on the shoulders of a dad and a mom who loved America. They handed the baton of liberty up. I want to be shoulders my kids can stand on and I can hand the baton of liberty up to them. Preacher, I'm not going to look back and my grandkids or great-grandkids say, Papa, why didn't you do something? No, I'm going to let my voice be heard while it can be. Folk, America's a blessed country. What I'm trying to tell you, though, is this. We're at a crisis point. And these choices that we're fighting, warfare, Joab on two fronts, Syrians here, Ammonites here, we got more than that going on. We need help from Almighty God. So Abishai, here's the deal. I got your back, but you got to have mine. Boy, that's good when you know you've got brethren that got your back, isn't it? You know what your pastor ought to know from the people here in this congregation that are members of this church that you got his back? He ought to know. His sweet wife ought to know. If somebody starts criticizing them, demeaning them, you've got his back and you put an end to that instantly. Just try this. Well, if that's the way you feel, I'm the wrong person to be talking to. Unless you and I go together and we'll talk with pastor. Preacher, they'll run for the county line whenever you tell people that. Because they want to spread gossip. Joab says, Abishai, I've got your back. Buddy, you've got to have mine. Look at verse 12. Here comes the advice. Monumental choices in moments of crisis. Look at verse 12. Be of good courage. This is Joab speaking to his brother. And by the way, I have a sneaking suspicion from the context. All the army of Israel can hear. Be of good courage. Let us play the men for our people. And for the cities of our God and the Lord do that which seemeth him good. Tonight, I want you to get these three monumental choices. Would you just jot them down? Choice number one is this. It's time for us to choose to cheer up. Cheer up. Look what it says. Be of good courage. Look, folk. To be honest with you, I have to mention it from time to time, but I'm tired of talking about COVID-19. I'm just tired of talking about it. 
It's like it dominates the news. And the numbers are constantly, you know, putting the numbers and I know it's real. But folks, the bottom line is this. If you go to the CDC website and you understand what they're calculating as far as cases and death rate, they're calculating three things. It's called PIC. PIC. It's right there on the, on the, the CDC website. P stands for pneumonia. I stands for influenza. C stands for COVID. So when they talk about a COVID death, it's all three of those lumped into one. That's why several weeks ago they said, really, really, the actual number of deaths may be between six and 9,000, not 200,000 or approaching 200,000 because that number is PIC and then thrown into that is all these presumptive positives. You go and present with certain symptoms. They don't even test you, but they assume that you've got COVID. And the reason they do that, sorry to say, because the hospital gets $13,000 for every COVID diagnosis. Anything gets you hooked up on a ventilator, they get 40 grand. Does everybody understand? Follow the money and it makes a lot of sense. I'm getting tired though of talking about all this stuff. It's time for us to cheer up. Right. Now, I need some help. Would you mind helping me, brother? Just, you're not afraid of me, are you? I don't mean physically afraid. That's not what I mean. Because you could tie me into a pretzel. But I mean, you're not afraid I have anything or contagion. You sure? Okay, come on over here beside me, all right? All right, now, I want to show you something. Four words in English. Be of good courage. Not trying to impress you, but I want you to learn something. The Old Testament, this passage, was originally breathed out by God in the Hebrew language. Okay? My dad used to say this. He used to say, I know a little Hebrew and I know a little Greek. And he said, a little Hebrew runs a restaurant, a little Greek runs a clothing store. He said, that's my knowledge of a, a little Hebrew and a little bit of Greek. Well, he then would explain his terminology from the Bible. The four words, be of good courage, is actually one word in Hebrew. And it literally means to do this. Would you mind putting your arm up like that? It means to do this. It means link up. Link up. Now, folks, listen to me. It's very important. The reason you and I can live a cheerful Christian life is not only do we have God in the other side of the harness with us, we've got brothers and sisters there too. Listen, I can charge hell with a water gun as long as I know God's people are with me. Are you hearing me? It's time to cheer up, which means link up together. Can I hear an amen? Only the Roman army practiced this. Sometimes they'd do it with arms. Most of the time they'd do it with their full body shield that would actually link up with a neighbor's shield. Take a couple steps with me. They'd link those shields together, form a wall, and they'd literally march over people. Are you listening to me? Because they understood the combined impact is way more significant than individual impact. Are you hearing me? It's time to cheer up and lock arms with brothers and sisters for the glory of God. Can I hear an amen? I don't wander off. Stand here and face me if you would. Again, I'm going to venture a question tonight. I know I asked it earlier. I'm an Alabama Crimson Tide football fan. Okay, anyway, all right. Uh, my brother told me several years ago. He said, Dave, you got to go with me to Bryant-Denny Stadium. He said, Bryant-Denny, where the, the, the Crimson Tide play in Tuscaloosa, will seat 104,000 people. And as I said the other day, you haven't lived until you've heard 104,000 people singing Sweet Home Alabama. It is absolutely awesome. Awesome. My brother said, Dave... You're going to find it very, very interesting. It was. It was true. He said, Dave, you know they don't allow alcohol inside or outside. He said, it's going to be the greatest family experience you've ever had. And it was. 
I sit right next to an African-American family, never seen them in, in, in all my life. They'd never met me. By second quarter, I found out that their son had played for Alabama from 1998 to 2002. They were honoring this particular game, the 2001 Crimson Tide team. So you know what? By third quarter, they were playing the Citadel, and we were down. Crimson Tide were down 10 nothing at the end of the first half, and we're getting a little nervous. Well, man, they poured it on in the third and fourth quarter. And by the end of the third quarter, this family that I'd never met was hugging me. I was hugging them. I mean, it was like we were family. It was awesome. Then then we go and have a steak at the restaurant where all the coaches eat on Friday night before a home game. And you know what? I walked in there. I couldn't believe it. Right behind the counter where you place your order or where you get your, your food and there's a cash register, they had the Ten Commandments on display all around the restaurant where the coaches go on Friday night before Alabama plays a home game. They had verses of Scripture, not I but Christ. May Jesus Christ be praised. All of this kind of thing. And so I asked the owner, I said, how long have you had all these signs and that Ten Commandments there? She said, 24 years. I said, I bet you hadn't heard one complaint. She said, not here in Alabama. I said, praise God. It was awesome. My brother said this, watch the tunnel when the Alabama Crimson Tide are announced, because if you'll look at the tunnel, you'll see them doing something Coach Saban has instructed them to do. Now come toward me if you would, please. He will pair players up, and I'm going to do this, and you get, you get to return the favor, okay? Now don't hurt me, I'm an old man, all right? Okay? But they'll pair players up. They're, they're fully uniformed, you know, pads, helmet, everything on, and they'll tell the guys to do this. Pound the shoulder pads of your, your comrade and say this. And they'll chant it. Preacher, you can hear it coming out of the tunnel. All of the players paired up, player with player, and they're chanting this. Get your mind right. Get your mind right. In other words, before you ever get out on the field, you're going to win or lose a game between your ears. Can I hear it? So get your mind right. Return the favor. Easy on me, but return the favor. Get your mind right. Get your mind right. Yes, sir, I'll do it. I promise I will. You want to do it again? Get your mind right. Okay. I'm going to be sore tomorrow. But you know, let's, let's give him a round of applause. Thank you, brother, so much. Appreciate it. God bless you, brother. Appreciate it. Folk, listen. You know what they're doing to each other? They're locking arms. In fact, more than arms, they're locking hearts is what they're doing. You know what ought to be the case right here at Calvary Baptist Church from this day forward? We ought to be locked at the heart. Locked at the heart. I mean, we're linked up. We're, we're willing to go to war together. It's time to cheer up, folk. Number two, look at the next phrase. You probably already figured it out. Not just cheer up. Number two, man up. Let us play the, what's the word? Men. For our Lord in the cities of our God. So not just cheer up, man up. Now, let me, let me, let me give you something so that hopefully you'll Understand, I'm going to try to take something that could be difficult and make it simple. Four words in English in the first phrase. Be of good courage. It's one word in Hebrew, and it means to lock arms. So it's time to cheer up. Let's, let, let's, let's do this together. Let us play the men. Five words in English. It's actually one word in Hebrew too. And preacher, here's what's interesting. The second Hebrew word that's translated into those five English words is actually a lessened version of the first word. You say, preacher, what does that mean? A lessened version of the first word. The first word means stand strong together. Be of good courage. Cheer up. You can do that if you're standing strong together, linked up. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Let us play the men is a shortened word form of the first word, and it literally means this. Now stand strong for yourself. 
Stand strong together. Be of good courage. Play the men. Stand strong for yourself. Folk, here's the bottom line. The only way I'm a help to that brother or he's a help to me is if we stand strong for ourselves. If we lock arms and I am dead weight, I am more of a hindrance to him than a help. Same thing is true. He's more of a hindrance to me if I have to drag him around. But if we're standing strong for ourselves, we can really stand strong together, can't we? And do something for the glory of God, which is exactly what this is saying. It's man up time, folk. It's man up time. By the way, I appreciate again, brother, so much what you said. I'm sitting there on the front row thinking this. The goal of the Christian life is not to arrive safely at death. You know what's been pounded into our head? We've been pummeled with it. The goal of the Christian life through the coronavirus is just, you know, I've got to stay healthy until the point, I've got to be as healthy as I can be until the point. The goal of the Christian life is not to arrive safely at death. The goal of the Christian life is to glorify God. Now I want to be as healthy as I can be. Okay, that's why I exercise and, you know, all that pump a little iron. And I want to be around to torment people. I do, preacher. I do for, you know, for a little while long. But the point is this. If I die healthy, but I'm not serving God, what point was that? The goal of the Christian life is not to arrive safely at death. The goal of the Christian life is to glorify God. And folk, there's threats everywhere. By the way, our president took a lot of guff. A lot of guff for walking to the tomb of the unknown soldier and not wearing a mask. Can I tell you why he didn't wear a mask? The same reason I wouldn't wear one there. Now I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't wear one everywhere, okay? There's some places I, can't, I couldn't get on an airplane unless I have to have one on, okay? I had to fly all the way to Oregon. I had to have a mask on. That's what American Airlines required. But this is so cool. If you're eating or drinking... Which means that virus is smart. It knows when I'm eating and drinking and when I'm not. And it only comes after you when you're not eating or drinking. So I told my wife, I said, I'm going to keep me an open bottle of water. I'm going to lower my little tray. And if they come by and want to say something about the mask being down, I'm I'm just going to go this. Because here's how it works, preacher. Safe, unsafe. Safe, unsafe. Have we lost our minds? Have we lost our minds? Don't turn, please just hear me. 2 Samuel 23 verse 20, you need to read about that guy who chased Joab into the temple or into the tabernacle. His name was Benaiah. He was one of David's mighty men. And here's what it says about Benaiah in 2 Samuel 23 20. It just says this, he chased a lion into a pit in a time of snow and killed it. That's all it says. Now I want you to think a little deeper than just, wow, that's interesting. In fact, the first begins with this. It says, Benaiah killed two lion-like men of Moab. And then he chased the lion into a pit in a time of snow and killed it. Preacher, I begin to read through that passage and it all began to come together. He killed two lion-like men. Then he chases, I guess he figured if I can kill two guys that look like a lion, I can take on the genuine article too. And he did. Think of this, folks. He chased a lion into a pit. Every Bible scholar will tell you this. The pit was the lion's den. Very familiar territory to the lion, very unfamiliar territory to Benaiah. Folk, have we been living as Americans in very unfamiliar territory? And you know what? Unfamiliar territory can cause you to have fear well up in your heart. I want you to understand, Benaiah went to the enemy's lair. Pit. 
in a time of snow. Folks, it had to be cold for there to be snow. Are you with me? If anybody noticed at 61 years of age, I'm really noticing it. Have you noticed that your joints and your body doesn't move as fluidly as it does in warm weather uh, whenever it's cold outside? Anybody notice that? So here it's a time of snow, so it's cold. Well, there's snow, so it's a slick spot as well. So every disadvantage is Benaiah's. Every advantage is his enemies. But he chases the lion into its own home and kills it. Wow. That means he ran to in faith, not from in fear. To in faith, not from... Preacher, all this year I've said, Oh God, help me chase the lion all year long. Help me chase the lion. Help me run to in faith, not from anything in fear. Folk, it's time to man up. It's time for us folk, I mean it spiritually, plant our feet, say here's where I stand, here's what I believe. That book, God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word is true from cover to cover and God can take care of me. And if I perish, as said Esther, I perish. But I'm going to perish trusting. I'm going to use common sense, but I'm going to trust my God. It's man up time. Now, I want you to watch one final thing and I'm done. Cheer up, monumental choice number one. Man up, monumental choice number two. Number three, look up. Say, preacher, where do you get that? Look at the end of verse 12. And the Lord. Notice the word Lord is in all caps. That means Jehovah, Yahweh. That's his personal name. And the Lord, Jehovah, do that which is good. Or which seemeth him good. It literally means that which is good in his eyes. Folk, listen, I got up this morning and I had no idea what this day was going to bring. Neither did you. But God knows all about all of it. And you know what? If I pillow my head in a few hours tonight, I'm going to say, God, thank you. But you know what? If I exit this life and I'm home in heaven, I'm going to say, God, double thank you, triple thank you. Because now my faith is no longer faith, it's sight. Hey, folk, we're in a win-win situation. Would you agree with me? So what Joab's telling his brother Abishai and the army of Israel is, man, it's time we cheer up. Let's, let's lock arms together. We're in this thing together. Let's man up. Let's stand strong for ourselves. Stand strong together. We've got to stand strong for ourselves. But men understand this. The Lord's going to do that which seemeth with him good. It's all in his hands. And by the way, if you study the rest of the chapter, God gave Israel a great victory this day. And he did it through some very unusual circumstances. But I can promise you this. God's going to do his part all the time. If there's a breakdown anywhere, if there had been a breakdown on this day, it wouldn't have been on God's part. It would have been on Joab Mabishai's part and the men of Israel. Are you with me? We got to link up. Man up. And look up. Now hear me out and I'm done. Preacher, when we first started our ministry in Washington, D.C., here's the phrase I heard over and over again. They will not let you do that. I want to set a tent up on the National Mall. They will not let you do that. Well, they may not have, but God did three times. I want to give a Bible to every member of Congress. First first phrase from a well-known person on Capitol Hill. They will not let you do that. By the way, it sounded, Brother Jones, like my grandmother. She'd always say that. Well, you know, they say. 
You ever heard somebody do it? They say. My grandma would say that. So I finally said, Mama, I want to ask you a question. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Who are they? I want names and addresses, phone numbers. They say, it's what you always say. They say, who are they? And she looked at me and she said, well, you know. Them. I said, well, thank you. That settles it. <laughs> who are they and them? Because they're always saying stuff to discourage everybody. They will not let you do that. I want to give a Bible to every member of Congress, well-known person on Capitol Hill said, well, preacher, they will not let you do that. I said, what are you talking about? Well, you know, campaign finance laws, can't, can't give anything to anybody. You know, that's a member of Congress valued over 10 bucks. I said, okay, we're going to play the word game against them. Because D.C. play the word game. You know, the people in D.C. Do you know, brother, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, if you don't have hair on the top of your head, you're not bald in D.C. You are follically dysfunctional. That, that is the term. <laughs> follically dysfunctional. If you're a crook in D.C., you don't generally hear anybody call somebody else a crook. You're an ethically challenged individual. That is the terminology. Have you noticed we've bought into it? We don't call it a used trailer anymore. We call it a pre-owned mobile home. Well, that sounds dignified, doesn't it? I was talking to a guy over in Tennessee. He climbs to the top of these little spindly pine trees, you know, in, in western part of the state of North Carolina, eastern part of the state of Tennessee, cuts the tops out of them. So I said, so you're a timber topper. That's what we used to call them. He said, no, I work for the federal government. He said, I am what they call a crown reduction specialist. <laughs> That's the truth. I'm not making it up. Folk, come, come with us. Come with us to D.C. I'll show you this. It's in every office building. You'll go into a little alcove where you can go down steps or take an elevator. And on the right side of the alcove, it'll have this word, stairs. On this side, it'll have three words. Internal relocation site. Preacher, they spent millions of dollars to get those three words. What we in the country call stairs. We get it. We're not stupid. Can I hear an amen? amen? They will not let you give a Bible. I said, okay. Then we're not going to give. As I shared with you the other day, give, gift. Those are four-letter words I told our team from here on out. We're not going to give a Bible. We're going to present a Bible. Because see, you can present a, a trophy an award, a plaque to a member of Congress, that can cost more than 10 bucks, but because it's not a gift, it's a presentation, they can accept it. So we're going to present Bibles. And the person that said they wouldn't let us do that, they looked at me and said, Preacher, that's brilliant. I think that will work. <laughs> I said, if God's in it, of course it will work. So you know what we did? We presented Bibles to every member of Congress, not once, three times, Preacher. With each new Congress, new, three times. You know what I did to my twin brother? I'd love for y'all to meet. My, my twin brother is as funny as a rubber crutch. He is hysterical. In fact, he's, uh, have you seen my brother recently? You know, he's, he's about 35 pounds lighter than I am, okay? Okay, which means this. He's a lean, mean string. If my brother were standing here tonight and turned sideways, stuck his tongue out, he'd look like a zipper, okay? I'm just telling you. He is thin. But he's a history teacher, Government economics teacher. So when we presented these Bibles, you know, I shouldn't have done it, brother, but all those things he did to me growing up, I thought, I'm going to get him back. So I gave him all the tough members of Congress, like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and a guy who's no longer there but used to be, they called him Uncle Charlie, Charlie Wrangle. 
My brother calls this, I shouldn't say it, my brother calls him pencil neck. I'm talking about Adam Schiff. When my brother got his 32 names of people he was to schedule an appointment with to present the Bible, he looked at him and said, what? He said, let me know. I don't even ask whatever it did to you. I know what it did to you, but it's payback. I said, it sure is. <laughs> I said, no, really, Dan, I've given you all these tough people because they can't pull the wool over your eyes. He knows how to deal with them. You know what? He went in the first time carrying a briefcase. The way we did it, preachers, we had people running all between the offices, one on Senate side of Capitol Hill, one on the house side, and they had big suitcases full of these Bibles we're presenting. And all they did was roll them up and down the sidewalk, and they had the phone number. The people that were delivering the Bibles had the phone number of these people, and they'd say, I'm going to be out in front of Cannon Office, Bill, I need to get three more Bibles. And they'd run up there with the suitcase, unload three, they'd go back through, present three more, carrying them in in briefcases to present to members of Congress. You know what my brother told me? He called me after he went in and delivered his first three Bibles. He said, Dave, you're not going to believe this. He said, I went in and it's like airport security. You know, you almost have to disrobe, you know, to get into the building. You have to lay everything up on the con conveyor. And he said, I laid the Bibles up on the conveyor. And he said, as they went through, a guy in a blue uniform came running around from the backside of the conveyor and said, what are those? And my brother said, they're Bibles. <laughs> he went back around behind, <laughs> came back around, had his open Bible. He said, I've been having my devotions this morning. Who are you giving those Bibles to? My brother said, we're not giving them to anybody. We're presenting them. The guy said, great word choice. He said, who are you presenting them to? He said, every member of Congress. He said, come back to my entry point at this building. I'll not have to check any of them anymore. I'll send you right on through. He said, it was so smooth from that. Can I hear an amen? They will not let you do that. God will let you do anything. Folk, look. It's time we look up and place our confidence in the holy God of heaven. Wow. Wow. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, would you speak to us tonight? Lord, on this day where Joab spoke to his brother Abishai in the hearing of all the army of Israel and gave these three pieces of advice, be of good courage. Link arms, men. Cheer up. There's great encouragement in doing it together. Man up. Let's play the men for the cities of our God and for our God Himself. And then, men, please understand this. We've got to look up because God is the doer of any good work. Lord, this was a shining moment for Joab. And Lord, I believe tonight, if we'll determine to make these three monumental choices in this time of crisis in America, Lord, we can be used of you in ways beyond anything we've ever imagined. So Father, I pray your people would tonight determine, I'm going to deliberately, on purpose, by design, make those choices. And anything that would keep me from locking arms with my brothers and sisters in Christ, from manning up and standing strong for myself. Anything that has kept me from looking up, maybe I've been living in fear, fear of an unseen virus, very real but not to be terrified of in any stretch of the imagination. Maybe it's fear of financial loss because of this COVID time is certainly had an impact on the economy both nationally and individually. Lord, if it's that we've stopped looking up to you and putting our trust and faith and dependence completely in you. Father, may we determine tonight I'm going to look up. 
I'm going to place my confidence in my God because He's got this. Father, help us tonight is my prayer. Now, friends, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, this is as far as I'm going to go. The message is very plain, very simple. You're going to understand why tomorrow night that God's laid this, I believe, on my heart. But, folks, it's time to cheer up. Man up and look up. Now, I want to ask my brothers and sisters in Christ, are you willing to lock arms with your brothers and sisters? Are you willing to lock hearts? If you're going to be able to do that and do it biblically, if there's anything between you and another brother or sister in Christ, if you're harboring any unsettled, unresolved, unreconciled issues, tonight's the night to deal with that. So we can link up together. If there's something that's been hounding you, some sin, something that's been trying to keep you from planting your feet and manning up, Friend, tonight's the night to cast down that thing. As the Bible says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every single thought to the obedience of Christ. It's time to man up. And then, folks, it's time to look up in faith. If you're willing to say, God, whatever I've got to do, whatever I've got to do, whatever I've got to do, whatever sin I've got to deal with, whatever course I've got to go back and correct, whatever I've got to do, Lord, I'm going to do it so that I can cheer up, man up, and look up tonight. I'm making those three monumental choices at this crisis moment in America. If that's you, I want to invite you to do something. Some have already come. Would you be willing to rise from where you're currently seated and make your way around this altar and just tell God I'm making those three choices. I'm cheering up, manning up, looking up. Would you be willing to do that? Just come right now. Would you do that tonight? I want to give you an opportunity to respond. We're not going to stand as a group, making it a tad more difficult tonight. Lord, I'm making those three choices. I'm going to man up. I'm going to cheer up. And I'm going to look up. You say, preacher, you're trying to encourage us. You bet your life I am. Because God's up to some stuff. And I want to be a part of it. Man, if there's anything between you and another brother or sister in Christ, would you make that right? So you can lock hearts with them. Cheer up, man up, look up. One final question. By far and away, the most important choice, and it is a fourth choice. The most important choice anyone will ever make in life is this choice. What do I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? It could be there's someone in the room watching by way of the internet that you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven. Friend, may I beg of you? Understand this. Jesus loves you. He died on an old rugged cross, was buried, rose again the third day for one reason, to forgive your sin. Right where you're sitting in this auditorium or where you're listening from on the internet, if you really want to know Jesus and want to turn to Him from your sin, right where you are, you could pray something like this. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I cannot save myself. I believe that you, Jesus, died and were buried and rose again to forgive my sin. And right now, 
I'm asking you to forgive me, to come into my heart and life and save me. Jesus, I want to serve you from this day forward. Empower and equip me to do so. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, whether you're seated in the auditorium or watching online, if you prayed it from the depths of your heart and meant it, Jesus said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. He saved you. I'd love to know about that. I'm going to ask you to do something if you're in the room. Come up to me and the pastor tonight and just say, Brother Dave, I prayed that prayer. I asked Jesus to save me. I wasn't sure if I was on my way to heaven, but tonight I prayed that prayer. Let preacher know you did that. And friend, if you're watching online, you can contact Calvary Baptist Church Union Grove right on Facebook and let them know that you've called on Jesus and asked Him to be your Savior. They have something they'd love to send you to be a blessing to you. Father, may it even be so is my prayer. Strengthen us, Lord. Equip us for tomorrow night. Lord, not just the end of this revival, Lord. The meeting will come to an end. But Lord, the revival doesn't have to come to an end. Because Lord, you're the God of all the earth. And Lord, you want to keep your people in a state of revival moving forward. And Lord, I pray that would be the case till you come back to take us home to be with you. So get us ready for tomorrow night and a vitally important message. And Father, we'll thank you. In Jesus' name, I do pray and ask these things. Amen. Look up at me just a moment. I want to do one final thing before pastor comes to pray.